with you. Love you dearly. I look forward to opening up God's Word with you all on Sunday mornings. We will be in the book of Exodus, chapter 6, looking at all of chapter 6 this morning. And once you find your place in Exodus chapter 6, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. And if you will please go ahead and just give me patience while I get through the genealogy of this chapter, the length and the names. So, Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 30 say this. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of, of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of the father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaal, the son of Canaanite women, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to the generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore to him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphon, and Zithri. Aaron took as his wife Elishabab, Elishabah, the daughter of Amminadab, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Ibasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their host. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people from, of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, The Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Let's pray. God, this is your word, holy and perfect and pure, God. And we need it, Lord. And I pray as we open up your word, we would come to it surrendered and submitting to it, God, as the ultimate authority in our life. Lord, I pray right now, as your people gather for worship right here, Crosspoint, that, Lord, our hearts would be stirred to love and greater affection for Jesus. God, we would see the greatness of the salvation that you have provided for us in Jesus Christ and secured for us by the giving of your Spirit to us, God. 
Lord, I pray right now for those in our congregation who are sick. Lord, many people are missing this morning just because of sickness, and we pray for their health and their comfort, and that, God, you would relieve them of this and bring them back to full health. We pray right now for the Dufours and celebrating uh, the birth of uh, a new baby boy. We pray, God, give them rest and give them sleep in days ahead and energy, God, as they celebrate new life. God, we pray for teachers and administrators who have just experienced their first week of school. And God, I don't know what it was like. Uh, it could have been a great week or a bad week, but ultimately I pray, Lord, that you would give them stamina, endurance, strength in the days ahead, and that they would see that their labor is not in vain because Christ has been raised from the dead. And so now they have an opportunity to make disciples even in their unique vocations, God. Lord, I thank you for teachers. I thank you for the gifts and abilities that you've given them, even in the people that we have here in Crosspoint. God, again, I do pray, fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us see your glory, O God, through your word, and that we would be transfixed and changed by it. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I don't know if my name holds a whole lot of weight, among you. Uh, and so it would be kind of odd for me to assert something or you to ask me a question. I say, I am Wes McKay, right? It would be a kind of odd conversation. Maybe you say, hey, can I trust you to, uh, can I trust you to bring the garbage out, Wes? I would say, I am Wes McKay. Don't you know who I am, right? As I can tell by the laughs, my name does not hold a whole lot of weight and authority and, um, and, uh, and reassurance, maybe, in your eyes. Uh, and sometimes names don't do that. But here in Exodus chapter 6, there is a name that holds a lot of weight, that holds a lot of gravity to it, that holds a lot of reassurance to it. And it is the Lord, Yahweh. And this is why... The Lord reasserts and reaffirms and repeats his name over and over and over again in Exodus chapter 6. It's to be reaffirming and reassurance for Moses that what is about to happen will only happen because I am the Lord. Is that God is going to assert his name and authority to reassure Moses of his power here. And this is a great segue off of what we heard last week in Exodus chapter 5, what Shane preached for us. And that Exodus chapter 5 ends on this very sad note, right? You remember the people question, uh, question God, Pharaoh questions God, and the last thing we get in chapter 5 is who's questioning God? Moses. Moses, right? The last line in verse 23, for since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you, God, have not delivered your people at all. So even Moses is now questioning God. And so what is God's response here? What is he going to say? Well, Exodus chapter 6 is his answer to Moses' doubt. And Moses is questioning God. And it's four words. I am the Lord. And so this morning, what we're going to see in Exodus chapter 6 is that God, God from Eternity past for us, for the Israelites, whoever, has shown and demonstrated and will show his people and us that he is the Lord. And that is what the first point on our outline will be today. And it actually will be the last point on our outline today. You're like, Wes, you didn't have enough time this week to write two different points. You created the same one. Well, you'll find out there's a reason why the first and last point of this sermon is the same. But the first point in verses 1 through 8 is this. He is the Lord. Is that God is going to assert his authority and his power and his ability by reaffirming his name to Moses. Has anybody ever had to um, put collateral down for something? Anybody? I gotta, you, you put something down to reassure someone, hey, I'm good for it, right? Like, hey, hey here, here's, here's the watch off my hand. I'm good for it. You can trust me, right? It's, it's something pledged as security, right, for repayment of a loan or something like that. It's reassuring the person. Look, I, I'm good for this. I will come through. I, I, I will get you your money. Here's collateral for that. Here's reassurance. Well, God is going to put some collateral down here in Exodus chapter 6. 
God puts up what he has done as collateral for what he will do. He's saying, you can trust me. You can believe what I'm going to do for you in the Exodus. You can believe that I'm going to redeem you and save you because of what I've done in the past. My history is the collateral, what I have done. And so he begins in Exodus chapter 6 by showing that that he is good for what he says by asserting his name, I am the Lord. Just look at this in verses 1, the whole chapter. How many times he says, I am the Lord, asserting his name. Look at this, verse 2, I am the Lord. Verse 6, I am the Lord. Verse 7, I am the Lord. Verse 8, I am the Lord. Verse 29, can you guess what the words are? Man, good job. So it's kind of interesting, and I don't think it's something we should glance over, is that something that's repeated that many times is probably what? It's probably important, right? I am the Lord, the Lord being Yahweh, God's divine name. And so he begins this chapter in verse 2. He says, Moses, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. That's God's response to Moses. I am the Lord. And then he goes on to say all the things that I have done and I will do. And so there's a lot of eyes in this passage in these 30 verses. It's a, it's a first-person point of view that God's speaking of. Look what I've done. Look what I've done. Look what I've done. Look what I will do. Right? It's flooded with per- first-person point of view language. And the reason is, is that this is God's resume in some sense that he's giving to Moses. So it's God's re- resume. This is what God has done and what he will do. Look at this. The first thing that he says to them of what he has done is verse 3. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, is that God has made himself known in history. He has not been secluded. He has not been isolated. He has not hidden himself. He's not like the Wizard of Oz standing behind a curtain to be hidden from the people around him. No, he has made himself known. This is the kind of God, the God of the Bible. This is the God of the Bible desires to reveal himself to his people, to make himself known, right? He has no desire to be secluded, isolated, hidden, veiled, or known. He wants to make himself known. And he has done that in the past to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can remember those stories from the book of Genesis where God appeared to Abraham. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, all these places. To Isaac, to Jacob. That God made himself known to the patriarchs. And what he says is this, verse 3 which may actually call some red flags for you. Because you may, you, you're the kind of people who know the Bible really well. So look what it says in verse 3. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. What you might hear the, the phrase El, what? Shaddai, right? El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. So it makes it seem like there's something new that's happening here with Moses that hasn't happened before. Now, if you've read Genesis, you can see that the the name the Lord actually has appeared all across the book of Genesis. Yahweh, that name, has appeared. It has come come to fruition. So you might be thinking, hold on, that doesn't make sense. We've seen Yahweh. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they've heard of this name Yahweh, so it's not really new here. What's going on? Well, here, what it seems like is being made clear is that the name here, the, te- the, the divine name Yahweh, is being more fully revealed and made known to Israel, to his people, than what has ever been made known, particularly here in the Exodus. So they are going to see God completely, fully here in what he is about to do for Israel. Is that El Shaddai, that's that's a title. Yahweh is his name. Yahweh is his name. And Yahweh fully encompasses his character, his attributes, his glory. That's what Moses, who he's interacting with, is Yahweh. And so, he says this to reassure Moses. That Yahweh, me... I am the same one who appeared as 
El Shaddai to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I was there with them. I appeared to them in visions, in dreams. I made myself known to them. And now I am the same God here, making myself known to you. It's to give Moses some reassurance that this isn't a new God. This isn't somebody appearing on the story who's never been here before. God has always been here. And so he says this to give Moses reassurance that he is the same one who appeared to the patriarchs. And so he is the one who acted on their behalf. And he can be trusted, God can be trusted to act on Israel's behalf now. Many of you are... You know, you, you are keen and kind of really aware of the stock market and you watch it and you make investments and things like that and you, you put investments in things that have a good record. You, you go back and look at its history. It's been consistent. It's been doing these things. And so I can trust it and so I'll invest in it. It's got a good track record to it. That's what God's saying to Moses to reassure him. I got a good track record. Look at how I've acted. Look at how I've saved. Look at how I've intervened in the life of the patriarchs, all those who came before you. I'm good for it. I got a good track record behind me. And maybe we can learn something about this this morning. Before we begin to question maybe God, like Moses, like Israel, before we begin to worry, maybe even to doubt, maybe we should consider this. Has there ever been a time that God has not been faithful to you? Has there ever been a time where God has not provided for what you need? Has there ever been a time where God forsook you? Has there ever been a time when God just gave up on you? I think we can all answer No. No. God's got a good track record with us. And so in those moments where we feel like we don't have what we need, or God's not listening, or God can't be trusted, or God's not going to be faithful to us, remember his track record. Remember his history. In your life, in the life of the people in the Bible, God is good for it. He's got a good track record. And he is faithful, has always been faithful, and will remain faithful. So why shouldn't we trust him now in whatever you're going through right now? And as God, he says, look, I've kept my covenant. Even though my people haven't kept it, I've kept it. I established it. I kept it. I promised them these things. I've heard their groanings, verse 5. And I've remembered what I have made. And then he gets to the future tense here. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, because of everything that I've done in the past, how I've revealed myself to the patriarchs, how I've made covenant with them and established it and kept it and heard them, look at what I will do. I will bring you out from the burdens. I will redeem you. I will take you. I will be. I will bring. I swore. I will give. Look at all these things that God is going to do. Because of what I've done, you can rest assured that you can trust that I will do what I say I will do. Right? And there's one, one I want to hone in on. Is that there's a lot of these things that he says I'm going to do. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to grant you these things. But there's one that I think kind of really encapsulates the book of Exodus. In a sense, and will be a recurring pattern here. He says, I will take you. Right? Look at this. Verse 7, I will take you to be my what? My what? People. I will take you to be my people and I will be your what? God. God. This is God's desire for the Exodus. This is what he's doing. Is that he's bringing about salvation for Israel to make him his people. His people. To be their God. Right? Right? To make them his own. And this is the language of adoption, people. This is what it is. It's that God is adopting Israel, making Israel his own people. And this work of adoption is relentless, right? It's relentless on the one who is adopting. 
And it's all for the benefit of the one who is being adopted. I, I, don't, I don't know if any of you have gone through an adoption process. I've only, I've only been able to, to experience it secondhand, to watch people go through it. And the adoption process is grueling. It's grueling. Paperwork upon paperwork upon paperwork. Uh, um, interviews, inspections, money, payments. All these things that the person who wants to adopt somebody has to go through. Right? To make this child their own. Right? And so this is what God is doing through the Exodus. God is not just doing something for Israel. He's doing something to make Israel something. Someone. His people. He is saving them and giving them a new identity, a relationship. His people. Victor Hamilton says it like this. Before God desires to bring Israel to Canaan, he desires to bring Israel to himself. To himself. So before God does this great act of deliverance out of Exodus, he is not just wanting that to be the final thing. I'm just going to save you and that's it. No, he's saving them to make him them his own, his people. And man, this is where Paul picks up this language of adoption, right? This is why we get all this language in the New Testament about adoption, adopted in Christ is that the Bible says all throughout the New Testament is that there is an adoption that has occurred in eternity past that we are going through the process now and that one day is going to be finalized when Christ returns. Just listen to this. Ephesians 1.5 says this. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. This is something that God determined in eternity past that he predestined us for adoption, to make us his own. Romans chapter 8, verse 23. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So now, what the Bible is saying is that we're now in this process of adoption. We're now in this grueling process. We're waiting, and the paperwork is going through, and we're waiting for the finalization of this adoption. But then the Bible speaks in the future, that the adoption process will be finalized in Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Adoption process finalized. Finalized. And so, Salvation, what we're seeing here in Exodus, and our own salvation, it's not just about something that God through Jesus Christ is doing for you. It's about making you into something, into someone. Children. If salvation is just something that's just done for us, it removes that relational aspect out of it. Has anybody ever got assigned baseball before? Anybody ever taken a baseball to a baseball game, got it signed by somebody? Right? Nobody? Am I just the only lame one in here that gets baseball player signatures? Thank you, Mr. Mike. I see that hand. Because if we just consider salvation as something that's being done for us and not something that's bringing us into something, it's merely like going to a baseball game with a baseball in our hand just to get the baseball player to sign it and never ever meet them again. Never to have any interaction with them again. To have no relationship with them again. We got them to give us something, to do something for us, and that's the end of it. Salvation is not just about, it is, but it's not just about God doing something for us that we desperately needed. It's about God doing something to us and to bring us in and make us his own. And this is what God is doing in the Exodus. To save them, deliver them. Not just to do that, but to make them his people. And to be their God. Salvation is about saving us from something and making us into something. Adopted children in Christ Jesus. That's it. And this, these adopted children, they get something great out of it. They get an inheritance. They get possessions. Look at verse 8. God's not just going to save them and make them his people. But he's going to give them the land that he swore to Abraham and to Isaac, to Jacob. And he's going to give it to them for a possession. 
So this inheritance, all the possessions that the adoptive parents have, when they, uh, when they adopt a child, guess who gets all those possessions as well? The adopted child. And this is what God does for his people. And man, if, I hope you all see these things, these themes already happening in Scripture, in Christ Jesus himself. Don't you see this? Everything that we've just read, just through these eight verses. This is all that we have in Christ Jesus, right? Is that God has revealed himself fully, perfectly in Christ Jesus, right? He's redeemed us through Christ Jesus, rescued us through Christ Jesus, delivered us through Christ Jesus, given us adoption in Christ Jesus, and now we have an inheritance in Christ Jesus, as Ephesians 1 says. All these things of verses 1 through 8 are true of us, people, in Christ Jesus. These are all ours. And so, Israel is hearing these words. We're hearing these words. And you hear all these things about this relationship that you have with Yahweh, with God, and you're thinking, what, what more do they need? Man, this has to be so sweet to their ears when they hear this thing. But when Israel hears these words that Moses tells them, it doesn't matter a thing to them. Why? Why doesn't it matter at all to them when they hear it? Well, what we're going to find out in verses 9 through 13 is this. Is that sometimes when suffering, and we're under intense pain and suffering, the truths that are in the gospel get blurred to us, and it doesn't really matter. Look at this, number two. Broken spirits and doubtful hearts. I read this really sad article, and I, and I, I genuinely say it's sad, and I, I do not want to encourage anybody to read it, but I was reading about orphanages in third world countries and how if you go into the baby wards, the baby rooms, they're silent. You get a bunch of these, a bunch of these babies in, in cribs, and you walk in there, and you're, you're expecting to hear just these cries, but it's silence. You might be thinking, man, a room full of sleeping babies, that's awesome. That's not it at all. The babies aren't sleeping. They're awake. But they don't cry anymore because they've cried for so long and nobody has come. So they've learned not to cry. One author commenting on it said it like this. Their silence means they have given up asking for their needs to be met. The reason the babies are silent is because they've cried for so long and nobody has come. They think, what's the point? Why cry? There's no good to it. Unrelieved pain and suffering can do that sometimes, right? Is that unrelieved pain that we go through in suffering has a way of, of breaking our spirits and dashing our hopes, right? And this is where Israel has gotten to in verses 9 through 13. Is that this message that God has just given Moses? Look at what I've done and look at what I'm going to do for you. Look at all the blessings that you're going to have as, as being my people and me being your God. Is that you would think the people hearing this would be like, that, that's amazing, I want all in on that. Right? But that's not their response at all. Moses' words falls on deaf ears and hopeless hearts. It brings Israel no reassurance, no peace, no comfort, and no hope. Why? Look at verse 9. Moses spoke these things to Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Is that the constant pressure of suffering and the constant thought of what seems like God's inactivity has broken their spirits. Their mess, the message is not received because they think it's too good to be true. And I, I don't see any activity here. No one is coming. And maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you have endured a long time of suffering and of pain. And maybe you've gotten to this point like Israel where you have just hope and you have prayed, and you have cried, 
crying so much that you stopped crying because you said, there's nothing that's going to do about this. There's nothing that's going to change. This is what it is. Has suffering ever brought you to this point? Broken your spirit, dashed your hope. Because nothing is going to change. And it's a really interesting contrast here. We saw at the end of chapter 4, two weeks ago, that the people, when Moses came to them that first time, after he had given so many excuses, he came to the people expecting that they would not listen, but does anybody remember what they did? They worshipped. They bowed down. Chapter 4, verse 30. That was their initial response. They worshipped. They bowed down. And they believed. But now look at the people here. They come, Moses comes with this message. They don't believe. They don't. Because their spirit is broken. When things are hard and painful and not going as we think they should. We are tempted to change our approach and our view of God. He's absent. He's inactive. He's sitting on his hands. If, if, he, if he even does exist, he, he's just sitting on his hands and he doesn't even care. Suffering is God's way of showing he has lots of displeasure in me. Or he hates me. Or he doesn't care. Or he, he's trying to punish me or push me away. That's not, that's not the purpose of suffering at all. Suffering is God's instrument to draw you near to Him. Not to push you away from Him. C.S. Lewis, the guy who wrote Chronicles of Narnia, he's written a lot of other good books too I can, would like to recommend to you. But there's this book called The Problem of Pain, and he has this great line in The Problem of Pain. He says, we as humans, we can ignore pleasure. We can ignore it. We can ignore what feels good. But pain insists upon being attended to. Man, we, that's why when we get the slightest backache, what do we do? We go to the medicine cabinet or we go to the doctor. We, we don't like pain, right? We don't like pain. We can't ignore it. It has to be attended to. But here's what C.S. Lewis says. God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. Suffering pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That the, the objective of suffering and pain is not to say that God is pushing you away, but to draw you near. Say, you need me. And th- this is Paul's experience in 2 Corinthians 1. It's one of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 1.9. Is that Paul is experiencing pain and suffering, and he's telling the Corinthians about that. It's gotten so bad where we're ministering to that we thought we were about to die. We thought we, we were, you know, we were writing our memoirs. We were over with. We were going to die in where we were serving at. He says, that, that's, that was how bad our pain and suffering was. But this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 1.9. says this. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Do you see what Paul's saying about his pain and suffering? He says, the objective was, is to draw us near to God and say, i got to rely on God. I have nothing else. God is going to be the one who's going to sustain me. I can't do this on my own. I'm I'm at the point of death. I feel like I've been sentenced to death. But suffering was intended, pain is intended to draw us near to God in reliance. And that is what suffering is for the Israelites. But it's broken their spirits. And so suffering and pain can have one or two directions to it. It can either break your spirit, lead you into disbelief, unbelief, or it can draw you nearer to God in Christ. And isn't it beautiful that our Savior experienced suffering and pain? He was not oblivious to it. And so Israel is, they're pushing away from the table. Their spirits are broken, their hearts are doubtful. And Moses is no different at this point, right? He's no different. Is that he's back on this what? Excuse train. Look at what he says. 
Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? He's going from the, the lesser to the greater. You're telling me to go speak to Pharaoh, but I can't even convince your people about what is going to happen. How is Pharaoh going to believe me? It's not possible. And then he goes on and he's back, he's back to his mouth again, right? He's back to, I can't do it. He says, I'm of uncircumcised lips. He's going back to his lips saying, there's something wrong here. I'm not eloquent in speech. I don't have the capabilities to do these things. My language will sound foreign to Pharaoh. It won't even, he won't even comprehend what I'm saying when I tell all these things. I can't do this, is what Moses is saying. And we are getting at the end here to be reminded that it's clear by now, but it hasn't been clear so far, that God is going to be the one who has to do this work. Not the people, not Moses and Aaron, but God. Because the Moses and Aaron, the people, they're reluctant. They're burnt. They're feeble. They're fickle. But Moses again keeps saying, I, I, me, me, me. But God's going to be the one who has to do the job. And so, Moses' excuse is met by God's command in verse 13. He says, I can't do this. And maybe you as a parent can get, get this. You know, a kid makes excuses, and you don't try to rationalize with them anymore. You're not trying to provide any good reason. You're just like, just do it, right? I know no good parents in here have ever said that. It, it's just me, right? I'm not, I'm not going to try and rationalize with you anymore. I'm not going to listen to your excuses. I'm not gonna, I don't want to hear your rebuttals. Just obey. And that's what God's saying right now here to Moses. Just do it obey, go, right? And so what would you expect after this? Moses made his excuses. God said, just, just go and obey. So you'd expect one or two things. You'd expect, one, Moses to actually obey and actually do what God's commanded him. Two, or you would expect uh, Moses to disobey and make another excuse. What nobody would expect to happen in the next section, next couple of verses is a genealogy. I know none of you were like, okay, I know this is going to go one of three ways. We're either going to get Moses disobeying, Moses obeying, or we're going to get a genealogy of a bunch of odd names here. I know, I know most of y'all were in that third category. It just makes sense that there would be a genealogy right here, right? It, it, it flows well. That's what this feel like, feels like right here in verses 14 through 27. A genealogy. And I don't even have a good title for that point number three. I just had to say, it's a genealogy. That's it. There's no cute little tagline to put on that. But it feels like a commercial break in a sense. You know commercial breaks in your shows that like you're watching, you know, you're watching whatever else, crime show, whatever it may be. And then the first commercial is like, you know, a, a commercial for Tide or something like that. You're like, the commercials don't even have any connection to the show. They don't even make sense, right? And that's what, that's what the genealogy feels like. It feels like a commercial break, and the commercial has nothing to do with the actual show on both sides, right? It's an interruption to your scheduled programming. But what is it doing here? Why, why would it be right here? And what I think we can all say, and I think you would agree with me, is this. It's not here by, by random. It's not here unintentionally. It hasn't been slapped together like a collage, like the ones that kids do like right five minutes before the class starts, like, oh, I had a project due. Let me slap all this together real quick. That's not how this works. That it, It's intentional that it's been placed right here. Just look at this. It's bracketed by the same phrase in verse 14 and in verse 25. These are the heads of the father's houses. Same phrase. These are the heads of the father's houses. So it's bracketed here, and it's intentional that it's being placed right here and that it's not at random. And what I think here is, I'm going I'm to give you three things what I think this genealogy is trying to tell us. It's first, I think the genealogy is a reminder of the important part that Aaron will play in the days ahead. You know, Aaron's kind of kind of been in and out of the story, and even after this, he'll kind of be in and out of the story. We won't get a whole lot of material from Aaron. But the genealogy is reminding us that, He's going to play an important part in Israel's salvation out of Egypt and also their wilderness wanderings and, and in the priesthood. 
Because look here, Aaron's name is mentioned more times than Moses' name. Moses is kind of in the shadow of Aaron right here. And so the genealogy is less about Moses and more about Aaron, and particularly on his line, the line of Levi. Because Aaron's line will be the one that served as what in Israel? Priest. Aaron's going to have a big place in Israel's life in the future. So the genealogy is a reminder that Aaron still has a part to play in this deliverance of Israel. And that he'll play a big part in the priesthood that is to come. Second thing is this. The genealogy is a reminder, and it's the genealogy's spotlight on Aaron particularly is a reminder that his involvement is due to Moses' disobedience. Remember that in chapter 4? Moses gives all these, chapter 3 and chapter 4, Moses gives all these excuses, I can't do this, this and this, and this and this, and this and this, and this and this. And finally God concedes and says, I'll give you Aaron, take him. And that's not, a, that's not necessarily a good thing, is that Moses' initial response should have been like, okay, I'll do it, let's go. But Aaron is a reminder that he's there, his involvement is only because Moses was reluctant, disobedient, obstinate, all these things. And so it's a reminder. And this is, this is interesting that the way that Exodus 4 and Exodus 6 are set up is that you get Moses making an excuse here in Exodus 6, and then it's followed by a genealogy about Aaron. In Exodus 4, we get Moses making excuses, and then it's followed by Aaron and his involvement. It's a reminder that Aaron's only here because Moses has been obstinate and disobedient. And lastly is this. The genealogy is, again, another reminder of God's faithfulness and activity all the way back to the patriarchs. Anybody one of those people that brings out the old photo albums every once in a while just to flip through them? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah? Some people. Uh, you, know, you know, you flip through them, and sometimes you're like, oh, man, I used to look so good. Golly. Man, Wes, how do you keep that figure? You look so great. You look it's a way to encourage myself. Man, you've, you've been handsome since birth, Wes? Man, golly. So we look through photo albums, and they depict different events and situations for us, different times. Sometimes maybe looking through photo albums is very hard. Maybe seeing them, it's like, golly. I, in that moment when I, that picture was taken, I was at the worst place in my life. That was one of the darkest moments I've ever gone through. I looked through that, and maybe I was in a hospital bed, or maybe I was going through a bad, uh, bad season of marriage, or maybe I, was being, I had just been fired from my job, and that picture is a reminder of those things. And so photo albums can have that way of kind of taking us back and looking at things that have, had, have been difficult to us. But also looking through photo albums, I think, is a way of God's grace to us to show us, look what God has brought us through. Look at what God has done. Yeah, that was my darkest day when that picture was taken. But look where I'm at now. Yeah, I lost my job the day before, but look at the job that God gave me. Oh, man, look, my family was in shambles right there. But God united us and brought us back together. Photo albums have a way of, yes, reminding us of very difficult seasons and difficult times and difficult problems that we had, but also where God has brought us to. And this is what the genealogy is doing is that it's reminding you of people and places way back when, and it's a reminder that God was faithful to them, brought them through bad situations, brought them through tough times, and He still remained faithful to them and still will remain faithful to you. God has not been sitting on His hands, as Israel and Moses may feel like, but through the genealogies, God's powerful preservation and orchestration are on display in how He gives His people stamina and endurance. And that's just a reminder that God is not, he's not just now stepping into the story of Israel, that God has been in the story. And maybe, maybe, maybe my encouragement to you today would be, maybe you should take a stroll down memory lane. Right now, if you think that you're in the worst possible scenario, situation that you've ever been in, maybe that there, there's nothing going right for you, everything is toppling down around you, everything is crashing and falling, why don't you go back and look at those pictures? Why don't you go back and say, I thought that very same thing in that picture. But look what God has done. Look at what God has transformed. Look at what God has 
miraculously changed for my good and his glory. Maybe sometimes we do need to get the nostalgia out and look through the memory albums, photo albums. And so this genealogy is a reminder that God is, he is Lord. And he's been Lord in all the lives of the patriarchs and he is Lord now in the life of Israel and Moses. And so this brings us back to the beginning, but also to the end. Is that point number one is point number four. He is Lord. He is Lord. God is again reasserting his name to Moses and to Israel. He is Lord. You know those, maybe you've been in those situations or like a movie, I've only seen this in the movies, where somebody's choking or somebody's, you know, maybe passed out or something like that. And maybe you're the person or somebody else. Is there a doctor in the house, right? Anybody ever, has anybody ever had to do that? Is there, is there a doctor? Is there a nurse? Anybody? Medical? No? Wow. Man, I was really hoping somebody would. So you scream it, you yell it, and then when somebody says, I'm a doctor, and then there's like a calm and a peace that just kind of comes across the room. Oh, there's somebody here who can help. There's somebody here who can, who can do something that I'm unable to do myself, right? It gives some peace and comfort and rest when the person identifies themselves as somebody who is capable, powerful, has the authority to help. And right now in this scenario, Israel and Moses are in that helpless and powerless situation. By his own confession, Moses is, I can't do this. Is there anyone else? I don't, I don't have what it takes. I don't have the abilities. I don't have the capabilities. And all along the way, God's, God's saying, I am Lord. I am Lord. I am Lord. I am Lord. Over and over again, I am Lord, and I have the power to do this. So this whole section of chapter 6 is bracketed by, I am the Lord, verse 29 and verse 2 is that God is saying His identity, His name, to comfort and reassure Moses that He alone has the authority and power to do these things. That He's asserting His name, I am the Lord. What more do you need, Moses? I am the Lord. Right? This is not about you. It's not about what you can do or what you can't do. It's not about your capabilities or your name or your authority. God says, I am Lord and I don't really need you. Israel's salvation is not dependent upon you, Moses. It's dependent upon me, only me, right? And that he's saying, I am Lord, and my lordship overrides any, any, any inabilities, physical inabilities, inadequacy, frailty. His lordship will take care of any problems, any barriers, any hurdles that Moses may create or Pharaoh may create. He is Lord, and that will take care of everything. Everything. But this chapter ends again with Moses attempting to excuse himself because of his inability. He's trying to get out of it. I can't do what's being asked of me. And that is the very point of why God restates his name I am Lord. I am Lord. Yes, Moses, you can't do it. You can't change Pharaoh's heart. You can't convince these people. You don't have the words and the eloquence. You don't have the power to deliver them. You don't have the power to redeem them. You don't have the power to rescue them. You don't have the power to bring them into the promised land. You don't have what it takes to get them out of their harsh slavery. But this is why I am the Lord. And brothers and sisters, let me say this. We need to come to the end of ourselves. The end of ourselves. Too many times I say, I this, I that, I this, I that, I this, I that. And we have to be reminded like Moses, you can't do it on your own. You can't save yourself. 
You can't make yourself better. You can't get yourself right with God. You can't fix your marriage problems. You can't beat sin on your own. You can't share the gospel with your neighbor on your own. You can't fix the work, your problems at work on your own. You can't endure suffering on your own. You cannot do any of these things on your own. That's why He is what? The Lord. And you are not. I am not. We can't do it on our own. That's why He is the Lord. And we need Him for everything. Acknowledging your inability is essential, but it's not enough. Moses, again, over and over again, acknowledges his inability. That's not enough. Acknowledge your inability and resolve to trust that he is Lord and that you are not with whatever situation that comes before you. You can say, I don't, I don't have what it takes. I, I can't. I can't do this. I don't, I, don't, I don't know these things. I don't know. Acno- yeah. Acknowledge your inability. But resolve to say, but that's why he is Lord and I am not. And this morning, you may be in that place. Maybe you are saying, I can do this. I can get this done. I can, I can fix this problem. I can fix that problem. I got these problems in my home. I got these problems in my marriage. I got these problems at work. I got, I got this problem. I, I am a bad person, but I can fix that and all these things. Let me just say this, you have to get to the end of yourself and say, I have no power to change any of those things. That's why I need the Lord. Acknowledge your inability and that you need Christ. He is Lord. That He came to do what you cannot do on your own. Left to your own, you would fail miserably. That's why Christ is Lord. That's why He came. That's why he lived perfectly, doing the thing that you could not do on your own, that I could not do on my own. He died a sacrificial death, something that you could not do on your own, that I could not do on our own, because we are sinners. That he was raised from the dead, powerfully, something that you could not do on your own, that I could not do on my own. And that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. This morning, if you are here and you do not know Christ, it begins by you acknowledging that you cannot do it on your own. And that why you must resolve to say that is why I need the Lord I need Christ this morning you might be a Christian and you have walked in here this morning with the full weight of what you are incapable of doing you've gone through a week maybe it's a week of school and you said man I've I've been reminded about how many things I'm incapable of doing or maybe you've been at work or maybe in your home whatever maybe I am incapable of keeping this life together This week, this year, your whole life, will you seek to resolve to say, I can't do this on my own. That's why I need the Lord. And that's why He is Lord. Because here's what you do when you try to take it into your own hands and try to fix all the problems, get everything in order. You're trying to say, I am Lord and I can fix these things on my own. But we are not. He is Lord. Acknowledge your inability and resolve to trust He is Lord. Let's pray. God, I love you. And I come to you, God, incapable, unworthy, inadequate, frail, weak, broken. I'm all these things and I cannot keep things together. But I resolve now, God, to trust that you are Lord and I am not. And that you can save, sustain, keep, guard, watch, all these things. Things that I cannot do. And so I pray this morning to people in here who may not know Christ as Lord, that they would come and acknowledge their inability to save themselves and resolve to trust in Jesus alone. And that those this morning who have walked in here with heavy burdens, heavy hearts, would come to a resolve and say, I can't do this. My life, all these things that are wreckage in my life, I can't do this. I can't beat sin. I can't fix my marriage problems. I can't fix my work problems. That is why you are Lord, O God. God, I pray that we would resolve this morning for the rest of our lives. You are the Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.